0: It ain't no use Oh, it
1: ain't no use Maybe some guys just Ain't meant to I was living in Montana once I was married For a while it
0: So we. He- Welcome to The Marinade with Jason Earl, a free-flowing conversation about the creative process with creative people. This is episode 89 and our guest is Willie Voughton. Willie is both one of my favorite songwriters and one of my favorite novelists. His musical work includes excellent records as frontman of the band Richmond Fontaine and also recent wonderful albums as the primary songwriter for the band The Delines. His Excellent novels include The Motel Life, which was adapted to a film starring Emile Hirsch, Stephen Dorff, and Dakota Fanning, Northline, Lean on Pete, The Free, Don't Skip Out on Me, which is one of my all-time favorite novels, and his most recent book, The Night Always Comes, which is one of my favorite things I've read in a long, long time. Y'all, this was an enormous thrill for me. I've spent countless hours listening to Willie's records and reading his words. I am so humbled and grateful to bring you my conversation with Willie Vlad
1: Wake up, babe.
0: thank you so much this is such an honor i am stoked to talk to you my um podcasting mentor uh who doesn't really know he's my mentor brian koppelman um said don't hide your enthusiasm when you're talking to your heroes so i'm not gonna hide my enthusiasm um, hey man <laughs> that's really nice you to say yeah i'm the i'm the same same way yeah uh, yeah yeah, I don't see any reason to hold back, you know, and especially because I just read I I mean, I just finished on the plane to Kansas City, I took my first plane ride in a year and a half. And I finished the night always comes. And uh, I love it, man. I, you know, I, I told you via email how much I love don't skip out on me. And then this book just devastated me in all the best ways. And so I'm stoked to talk about it. Oh, man, I,
1: it makes me think. Uh, uh, um, you know, that band, the Sadie's? Uh huh. They're they're my favorite band and and I know those guys the Good Brothers Uh but I get so excited uh, talking to those guys like when I see those guys I play gigs with them I go see every show they do but I get so excited like I kind of lose my shit and um and it's so like I wake up the next day like and I'm just like what the fuck who are you man. Because I just can't, I get so excited. I'm I'm that guy that's just like, you don't know, man. You don't know how good you guys are, you know? And like, it's just, but you got it. When you, when you like a band, you gotta, when you like something, you gotta just say it, I think.
0: I totally agree. And I, I think that's so, it's so good to hear from you, you know, who's probably toured with a lot of your heroes. So it's really cool and played with a lot of your heroes and had a chance to meet a lot of your heroes. So it's really cool to hear you say that. Like, even at the the level that you've achieved, the success you've achieved, that you still feel that fired up about the art?
1: Yeah, man. I mean, there's, uh, I mean, meeting your heroes always makes you nervous, you know. Uh, I mean, I've never been good at meeting people I admire, even in my personal life, you know. Like, it always makes me uncomfortable because I guess I just assume they're going to think I'm a bum or something. So, it's probably comes from that side of me. But with somebody like the Sadies, I think it's just like I can't put into words how much I like those that band, and they're fucking great guys too. They're they're really cool, but but they're just so good, and they're the band I always wanted to be in, you know, that kind of band. And so I just can't. Them and Dead Moon, the Portland band, was the same thing. Port, Dead Moon was a band you'd wake up. Uh, I'd wake up every morning and I'd have like another Dead Moon shirt. They only had one really. And I'd always have so aside like six or seven of the same shirts, I'd always have patches, you know, because and I never I never put patches on anything, but I, I had like a stack of like 20 patches at one point because I'd get so excited, I'd just have to buy something to, you know, carry around with me in a drunken haze. Uh but it's I mean, it's fun. It's fun to love stuff, you know.
0: Yeah, oh, for sure, man. Well, that that's a really good segue into just talking about Portland and, and and the, you know, I read the whole book, and then I get to the end, and I, I was doing research for this conversation. And of course, I want to talk about the music, but I kind of want to, I kind of want to go from the acknowledgments of the book, and kind of take us back in time to talk about the music and then work our way up to the book, if we can, because in the, the acknowledgments, Um, which I absolutely love. The acknowledgments to the night always comes. It's a little uh, different from the average acknowledgments. You talk a a little bit about the fact that you moved to Portland when you were 26 and you've been working in warehouses. And then you begin this stint as a house painter and you start Richmond Fontaine. And I'm wondering, because I think about like with your characters, both in your books and in song, so they're they're so resilient and they're they're all hard working in their own ways and they're they don't they don't give up so many of these characters there's so much hope in these characters even though they go through a lot of shit and they're and they're going through tough times and i wonder how much your time working in, a, in warehouses and then as a house painter obviously informs that, I would assume, but how different you think your writing would have been if you hadn't had those experiences?
1: I mean, uh, well, that's a good question. Uh, You know, I always, uh, I worked those kind of jobs just because I didn't think I could ever get another kind of job. So I think I came into into the world a little beat up anyway, I think. So I hated that kind of work. I just was too shy to ever get restaurant, jobs or retail jobs so i just worked in warehouses and trucking companies and um and for me hitting the lottery was being a house painter because i made the most money and um and at least you got to be go to a different house all the time and your environment changed and then i went out on my own but yeah i mean i I think i was always interested in in um and people that that were struggling uh people that were uh like just lower kind of working class people because that's where I was from. And then, and I, you know, from an early age, I think I thought I was going to end up being a bomb anyway. And, um and so those kind of people always were the ones that interest me. Cause I think my whole life I spent half of me trying to destroy myself. Another half saying, dude, don't destroy yourself. Are you crazy? Right. So I've always been, when I was younger, I was more, uh, dramatic that way on that fence line of to give up or not to give up um so i always had that big edge on me but yeah i, I, I would assume you know the jobs i had filter into it just because that's all i ever did is work those kind of jobs so it just filters into your writing
0: why did wow. you think that that's so interesting to me man especially just seeing what you've accomplished now like why did you think why did you have that mentality? Where does that come from that you, at the time, as a young person, thought you were going to be a bum? I, I mean, I don't know, man.
1: <laughs> I mean, that's just like in my DNA. I, I mean, you know, it's a lot of family stuff, probably, and all that, uh, uh, that I don't really want to get into. Uh, yeah, sure. But I think uh, one of the things is I grew up in, in Reno. And at the time, Reno was a real kind of uh, dying casino town. Uh, this is, you know, by the time I was, I guess, 18, 19, Indian casinos had just started. So the Indian casinos in, in Washington, Oregon, and California started taking all the gamblers out of Reno. Um, it's one reason why, why Vegas went so crazy, um, because they had to. They had to go over the top to survive, and Reno just couldn't. So when I grew up, Reno was starting to fade as a casino town. So it was getting really dodgy downtown. And it was also a place where a lot of men, like alcoholic and gambleholic men would finally end up in Reno. And they'd live in these old motel, weekly motels, and kind of one step away from being homeless. And so I grew up seeing a lot of those guys. And part of me thought it was romantic that they gave up. Part of me assumed that that was gonna be me um uh and then like i said part of me was scared shitless because i was kind of raised like you just work and work and work and work um so i think seeing it too i saw an avenue of like escapism you know by the time i'm 17 i was i was going into like old man bars just just because and drinking with old men just because i thought I mean, I looked like I was fucking 12. I don't know what they were (laughs) let me in, but I was still, I was just interested in in talking to him. And, you know, with that age, I thought it was romantic a little bit, but not like in the Charles Bukowski sense. It was just like, I was just like, oh, they've already given up. Man, that's cool. And, you know, as you get older, you you sit next to a 40-year-old guy who's lived in a bar. When you're 16, 17, you think he's cool you you do that at 30 and you go man this guy's a bomb what the fuck is he spending his life in a bar for mm-hmm. so uh, uh so yeah man i was always you know playing with that little snake of you know self destructive or giving up before uh before i even tried really
0: were you picking up your pen at all at that time were you writing at all i mean i wrote i wrote
1: songs since i was 10 11 like obsessively kind of uh 10 or 11 and it wasn't until I was 18, um, I, I was never very good at, good at. I guess I should say that I started playing guitar, because my brother told me, he goes, man, you're, you're such a depressed little dude, you know, my brother wrote songs and stuff, he goes, "We, well, you should write songs about it, and so, uh, he, he got my mom to buy me a left-handed guitar, because I was a lefty, like, real hardcore lefty, I couldn't play his guitar, and, um, um, or I gave up, I should say, and then, um, you know, I just started writing songs after songs, but like I said, man, I was really shy. Like I was almost too shy to go to school, mm-hmm. and um, and I did, so. In, in a weird way, being in a band saved my life because it forces you to make a fool out of yourself in front of other people. Mm-hmm. But it, it about killed me. I didn't think I could write stories because I I wasn't a great student, and I'd never done anything remarkable in life. You know, i I, I was I lived with my mom and my brother. And none of us were that remarkable. And I, you know, uh, uh, you know, and I, at that age, I thought you had to be really remarkable, you know, like it, it either been kidnapped or was like in the Marines, like special forces or in the CIA to, to write or a genius. And I was uh, obviously none of those. Um, and then about 18, I just started, uh, I I read a guy named Raymond Carver and, um, well, it was a little before that I started writing, but then I read Carver and Carver wrote about failed men. Just like guys, not, not dramatically failed, like, but just guys that kind of have their women kind of take care or pay the bills and keep their shit together. And the guys just kind of fall apart around them. And I was like, Jesus, I know, I know those stories. And 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 then I just started writing like a fiend after that. Once I felt like I had permission to, to tell the kind of stories I wanted to tell. Uh, then, then, then I just, you know, I was writing all the time. Oh by, my by God. Or so, yeah.
0: That's great. But, uh, the in the, Another thing that comes up in the acknowledgements is that after you're in Portland for a while, and then you buy a house and you said in the, in the acknowledgements to the book, you said, I was raised to believe that success was owning your own home. And my life changed when I bought that house. Can you talk about like that moment and that decision? And then I kind of have a follow-up about homeownership in general.
1: I mean, yeah, you know, I, by then I was, uh, so I was, uh, 30 maybe. Okay. You know, and I'd saved some money over the years and I, you know, I had a little painting business, so I was doing okay. And Portland was affordable, you know? So I, I, there was a 480 square foot, abandoned house on a, next to a Korean mini-mart, mm-hmm. but it was near the drummer where we practiced, Richmond Fontaine practiced. And I, and I went to the drummer, who's the smartest guy in the band. He still is. He's in the mm-hmm. lines and mm-hmm. old friend of mine, really cool dude, but also like, like really smart. And, um and I just, I took him to the house and I go, do you think I, you think I maybe, you should kind of you think i should try to get this house i was like i had no confidence in myself or anything and he was like he he just kind of said look man you'd be an idiot not to just do it call this lady and have her buy it see if you can do it and this is before the big short you know this is before the fucking housing crisis and so uh uh you know it was a seventy thousand dollar house i had 20 grand down and i could barely get a loan so it was back when I had to have my boss and my, the painting place I, I worked, well, yeah, yeah, because I, I was still working for him by then because I had to get a loan through him. So my boss said, hey man, I'll say you're getting a raise to manager. And then that pushed me over. And then right when I got the loan, I quit and went out on my own, which which my buddy wanted me to. Uh, and, and my whole life changed because then all of a sudden um, I own this little house and I started my own painting business. And I mean, I was so excited that me and the pedal steel player for Richard Fontaine, a guy named Paul Brainerd, um, we broke into the house before, two days before I got the keys. We broke in the back through a back window, and then we just sat in there and, and drank all night because I was just couldn't believe that I was going to own this house. It, the the, the, the <laughs> sink didn't work. The bathroom didn't work. Nothing fucking worked in the place. Yeah. Um, and, but you know but I knew a ton of you know contractors because I painted all day so it was no big none of it was a big deal and really man I, it did change my life you know because I quit going out so much and I started taking care of myself a little bit more and uh, I liked myself you know probably for the first time I thought I was alright and uh, um, you know so it took me till 30 to, to, to like myself more than I hated myself I guess.
0: That's earlier than a lot of folks did. did yeah, yeah, you're right No, um, Did you do you think there was some kind of like, or do you think even now looking back on it? Do you, do you think there's some kind of intrinsic value in home ownership? Or is there a sense of value that we feel as a result of some of those societal pressures? Like you mentioned the the quote about having feeling like being raised to believe that success was owning your own home? Do you think it's an intrinsic value in itself does it have value in itself or is that something that we react to because people expect it
1: well i mean i might be the last kind of generation that is is gonna that the idea of home ownership is you know that anyone can own a house i mean i think all that comes from like back in the day when you had a landlord who would could kick you out at the drop of a hat or could raise your rent or tell you you know you can't have this many people here you can't do this you can't do that so, I think, in general, so many people throughout time have never been able to own anything, so they have no power. Mm-hmm. So you know, I think that the American dream of home ownership is really just like, look, it, it means that you get power, you get a little bit of skin in the game, you know, no one can tell you what to do exactly. No one can push you out of a drop of the hat, and no rich guy can push you around. I guess that's would be the American dream part. For me, it was just my, that was my mom. She was like, well, that guy is kind of weird, but he does own his own house well, so he's not a bad guy. She was like that, like if, you know, she was not a a fan of arty people or, you know, any of that kind of, if he was a musician or anything, but if he owned his own house, she thought he was a little bit cooler. So, you know, so for me personally, it was just like, if I owned a place and my, you know, my mom wouldn't think I was a bum. And, and then, and I was raised like that, you know, and, you know, and I, you know, all those things combined, you know, just whatever you do in life, they can build your confidence a little bit. And I, that for me really did.
0: I can relate, man. I, I mean, my journey is very different, but we bought this house uh, three years ago and I'm 40 and like buying this house was fi- me feeling like, okay, I'm finally a grown up like it really did, you know, even at 36 or seven, whatever I was at the time we bought it, there was kind of like this, I felt more settled. And it wasn't like I was going out all the time, or anything like that. I mean, I was pretty settled in by by that point in my life. But the difference between the little apartment that me and my partner lived in then, and then having this house and having this piece of land, to me that I feel like there is an intrinsic sense of value that I feel just knowing that this is our little piece of land, you know, it just, there's something to it.
1: Yeah. And I mean, I think that's just in, in the DNA of being American really, uh, because that's one of the things everybody came here for is that they can finally own something that the rich guys in Europe own most everything. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so, uh, so yeah, man, it's in, it's in our blood and it, you know, like I said, man, I think it really, uh, it's real. It's real, even if it's not real, but, uh, I think mm-hmm. it's, it's real literally in the fact that you do have, you know, like I used to have landlords. I used to buy old muscle cars in my twenties mm-hmm. and I'd always have my landlords coming over and yelling at me for how many cars I had. And, and rightfully so. I mean, I was kind of a jackass about it, but, uh, but you know, or, or you know, you have to call your landlord. If you know, your girlfriend wants to paint a bedroom, you know, or whatever the, you know, yeah. it is yeah uh, you have some guy telling you how to live man and um and that that used to drive me nuts and uh and when you have your own house you you can do whatever you can paint your room fucking black shiny black and put you know you can do whatever the hell you want to do crazy thing you want to do and you can have five muscle cars in your backyard if that's what you want and i and I just you know, that made a lot of sense to me. But for me, personally, it was opposite. I bought like a lawnmower and a cookbook. And I was like, I I was shaving more, you know, I was like, you know, I didn't wear, I didn't have a briefcase, but, uh, you know, (laughs) but I wanted one, you know.
0: That's so funny. The first thing I bought was a lawnmower. I was like, man, it's finally my chance to have my own lawnmower. And I went and got like the nicest battery powered one I could find, you know, I was like, I'm going to be sensible about this. And and be a, have a sustainable lawnmower. and I was so fired up about that damn thing. Still fired up about it three years later. But that's an interesting point because I think even the point about like it's your own place and you can do whatever you want with it because there's a there's like a there's a creative aspect to it too. There's the fact that like if you have this idea, we have a, my, my partner's an artist and there's a mural on our back um, wall that she painted right when quarantine started last year. And it's just like, fuck it. It's my wall. I can paint a mural of my dog on it if I want to, you know? And there's something that like, it's like, yeah, this is, this whole house is our canvas and that makes such a big difference.
1: Well, it's like in, in the night always comes where, you know, I, I lived in a place like that where, you know, you didn't, you didn't tell your landlord anything that was going wrong with the house because, because he forgot to raise the rent and you've, you fucked up this house. You've like painted like, I've done that too, where you painted rooms you shouldn't have and pulled carpet like nasty carpet up and done all that stuff. And so you never call your landlord because you just don't want him coming into the house to see what you've done. So really, you feel like a criminal when really you're just fixing the place up. But but uh, uh, but so there's that thing, too, where you feel like, oh, it's mean old dad's going to come over and kick us out of the house. You know, so, yeah, like you said, you know, if you want to put a mural of Satan on your wall then uh-huh. you should, or your dog, or, you know, your grandma, you know, you can without having to cover it up when the landlord comes over.
0: I got to tell her that she, if I tell her that, if I suggest the idea of a mural of Satan, that's going to happen by the like, <laughs> next week. <laughs> no, I man, yeah,
1: that'd be a hard thing to look at every day.
0: <laughs> um, the, I, i'm curious about that time um because if i've got my timeline right richmond fontaine's together through the through quite a few years before you buy that house right like
1: yeah yeah man we were together five or six five years or six. And, you know we i mean we were i mean the thing about us is we just we really liked each other mm. uh as buddies and um um and we had a we were hellraisers we had a really a lot like a lot of fun but you know i was not cut out. i was a workhorse songwriter i could write a lot of tunes but i was not cut out for being in front of people mm-hmm. and it really was i feel really bad for those guys cuz i wasn't much of a singer and um and i couldn't um and i and i really struggled like i couldn't play sober until i was 35 uh wow. like it was so hard for me to get in front of people that it was that, I, that that we could have been a better band early on if I had my shit together more uh, but I just was so fucking shy I just couldn't do it so uh I always really <laughs> I still like just talking about it makes me want to go over and like buy each of those guys something and drop it off at their house for uh, putting up putting up with you know uh, uh, with me being not very good I mean i, I always showed up and tried hard. Uh, and that stuff, and I was cool to those guys, but I just wasn't very good, and I always feel bad about that. But you know, you are who you are. It's interesting you say that
0: because <laughs> you made a bunch of what I would consider great records during that time, and and then continued to make great records after. The and so like that's interesting that you have that perspective, and I wonder what the other guys and if you've had that conversation with them, and whether the other guys feel that way or feel like, nah, Willie, it's, I mean. We were all on our journey together and that was kind of how it was
1: and we did you know we had the the thing with us is we I don't think we ever had a bad time um uh, we just no one really liked us for for a long time until maybe I guess around two we put out a record called Winnemucca mm-hmm. and uh, people started liking us a little bit then and that was when that was right around the high time I bought my house and so my confidence got my confidence went up shit started going my way about 30. And so, and I started writing songs that I kind of wanted to write, uh, that I felt like I should, they were kind of normal kind of songs for me. Um, and uh, yeah, I guess I just kind of got more confidence around 30. So I started that was like three, three, right? Four records in, yeah, yeah.
0: And that's when the band started doing
1: okay, too. So
0: that's cool. That's I think that's when I got into Richmond Fontaine. Right about that time, and I think I think if I remember this correctly, I'm always interested in how I got into a band and how you come to somebody's music because there's just so much stuff out there, especially now. But I think what happened was that a Richmond Fontaine tune from Winnemucca showed up, if I remember this correctly, showed up on a, a Pandora station back when Pandora was just stations, you know. And it was a Lucero Pandora station, and I think that that it showed up there, and I went like, "Oh, this is my shit," you know. And then then I kind of went back and did the dive, but I think that's about when I came to the band too. That seems to make a lot of sense.
1: Yeah, that was right. That was right when things started. You know, we maybe three years after that we started touring Europe a lot, and um, and then our whole life changed. It got really really fun after that. Um, but yeah, man, they're a cool band. Uh, I, I love those guys to death. I mean, I play with two of them still, mm-hmm. um, and the one I talk to all the time, man. Cool. Uh, so yeah, I, I really like those guys.
0: That's great. Yeah, I read a I read something where you said something to the effect of like we wanted to end, we wanted to get out and get out before we stopped liking each other or something to that effect. <laughs> well, I
1: always looked at I always looked at Fontaine like a just small band, you know, we're a mom and pop operation and we were getting older and we we'd had a we'd had a really good run we had a lot of fun things we got to see a lot of different countries we got to you know uh get drunk in a lot of foreign countries uh and and you know it was being a small band where you're not making a ton of dough you're always surprised when each guy gets in the van each time mm. for a tour you're like man really <laughs> you're you're really going to do it again your wife's not going to kill you and all that or like you got you know it's going to you're, you're gonna sacrifice for this and I and I just wanted I didn't want one of the guys to have to say, oh man, I can't do it uh, and because I know that would make him feel guilty and um, you don't want a guy to have to quit even though he's tired um, so I just said, man I want us to pull over like in front of a nice cocktail lounge and uh, uh, stop when we want to stop and so so we did
0: Wow amazing there had to be something keeping you going too though like other than just that you liked each other there had those guys clearly had to believe in the songs I mean you were writing these songs they had to believe in these songs
1: yeah I mean I think I think we did I think we all did uh and I you know I was really honored to get to write tunes for these guys so Mm. so for me it was fun because I just got to I just got to write songs all the time and um and and that's what I like to do uh so yeah yeah we we all bought into it and we tried and, and and you know, like, uh, only one guy—the guy I already mentioned—the smart guy in the band—had a passport, but none of us even had passports. Uh, so, so when we got to start touring Europe, I think was what kept us together because we were all like, "Man, we'll never get to see any of this stuff yeah. uh, uh, without this band." So, so let's just keep let's keep the band going and make cool records. And it was, you know, and, and we started doing better over there. So. When you're doing a little bit better at something, um, it gets you up in the morning and keeps you trying.
0: Yeah, that's amazing. So you talked a little bit about the the fact that you weren't as confident in your singing and you weren't as confident in front of people and as comfortable. Well, with the Delines, you don't have to worry about that part. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fuck
1: it. Well, that was the thing, you know, you get you start getting older, you know, you start getting older and you're like, Man, uh if I wanna change something in my life, I gotta do it. Pretty soon I'm gonna be fucking dead. Mm-hmm. So I always wanted to be in a band with a singer that I really liked. And uh, and I just wanted to write songs and hide in the back, like like <laughs> as far back as a drummer. Uh, and so so I did, you know, there was a band called The Damn Nations out of uh, Austin, Texas um, that I loved. And we, we toured with once and, and it was uh, Amy Boone and her sister Deborah Kelly. And, and, I, and they played both of them sing on uh, uh, or actually Deborah just sang on a couple Fontaine records. And and anyway, we did a tour with Amy in, in Richmond Fontaine. She was like a keyboard player and sang. And uh, um, and I remember hearing her warm up at doing these kind of country soul ballads. And I was like, Jesus, I want to be in a band. I want to be in a band where we just play ballads. And because those are the kind of songs I like to write anyway. Mm-hmm. And um and I'll just hide in the back and so I wrote her a bunch of songs and you know kind of wrote a little thesis on why uh why she should join up with me and um uh and she did she took a chance and and then we started the Delines.
0: That's awesome, man. I, those records are so beautiful. I mean, I was just like I I was so familiar with the Fontaine stuff that I was pouring over the Delines stuff, which I'd listened to but not really like dug into and i was the last couple of weeks i've been digging in the songs are so gorgeous and i totally get why you were like oh man that voice right there's something about her and the way she delivers the lines and the way that she sings and the emotion It's she has such a beautiful voice i'm curious about the creative process and how different it is with the lines versus richmond fontaine and how you approach the songwriting process or is it any different
1: well, I mean, the one, th- the one thing that's different for real is with Fontaine, I was like, I'd bring in six ballads to every rock song. Mm. And you I mean, even when I was like 15 and trying to be like a punk rock guy, uh, I was secretly at home listening to ballads you know, <laughs> and write, and writing ballads. So writing like rock songs was always more work. So for me... I, I, I love the ballad and then when you take my voice out of it then I start getting courage I was like well because I couldn't pull off half the songs Amy sings mm. so I'm, I try to write more classic songs because she can pull off a big love song she can pull off a big heartbreak song where I was always too scared to do it so Fontaine I mostly wrote stories around situations or put you in kind of like a scene and, and, and then pulled you out But with her, I can write kind of more classic, bigger tunes because she can pull it off. Uh, And so for me, it's that I I get to like, I'm not ashamed of myself of writing ballads all day long. So Mm -hmm. because we're we're just a ballad band and uh, and she sings ballads great. And um, and so I don't really approach it differently thematically just because I am who I am. But but I do talk to her a lot and and she'll tell me issues or things that she thinks are interesting like we have a new record coming out next February and, awesome. and she, was, she was all interested in the Gulf Coast, you know, and like, you know, uh, Tony Joe White and like songs set around the Gulf Coast. And so I just started putting my head there and thinking about that. And I'd been down to that area a few times. And, and so, you know, we just talk and, and I listen to what she says and then I go home and try to write around that
0: oh that sounds like it's gonna be my kind of that's gonna be my shit right there i'm looking forward to that record a great deal oh so man hope so. yeah so is that how far
1: along is that it's done it's done we just mastered it uh, uh and um it's called the sea drift
0: sea drift awesome oh i'm so excited to hear those songs um oh cool thank you for saying that yeah for sure uh so okay so it's I think you kind of answered part of what I was going to ask next in that you work with Amy in uh, quite a bit in terms of like talking to her about, about songs, but I'm curious about when it comes to like writing from the perspective, both in song and then also um, when you're writing a novel, how, how the writing from the perspe- from a perspective of a woman, I mean, the, I, I was just thinking about it. I think the night always comes. It must be like a majority of female characters and, and the protagonist is female. Um, you're writing all these songs and Amy singing them. How comfortable do you feel writing from that perspective and how aware are you of that at all, if at all? I mean, I think, well, I, I guess
1: with, with Amy, it's, it's fun. Cause you know, I, yeah. Uh, I love like uh, Candy Staten and, ricky lee jones and sammy smith and bobby gentry like i always had crushes on all all of those ladies like i went out with candy for a while in my mind and then i you know i (laughs) i I married bobby gentry before she married bill harrah or after she married bill harrah uh in reno uh and sammy smith was a gal i went with but she wouldn't marry me so I mean, I live with these gals in my head and I've always loved when they sing ballads. So uh, um, so uh, writing those kind of songs, I just think like I'm writing for those women or writing for Amy. I'll just be like Amy's like Candy Staten, but she sings different. So just write her a song that you'd write for Candy. And so I don't really think about it as much uh, woman or man. Um, I just kind of think about it of, the, of a world and, and fiction's a little different. Um, because you got to dive in so much deeper, um, but really, I I think every woman character I've written, I think of them as my, well, at least the good ones, is my cousin, who was a was an old like drinking buddy of mine in my twenties, and so I, I think every every woman that I like in my book is her, and then it it keeps me from falling in love with them, and it keeps me from thinking about them because you know I I so much time with my cousin I, you forget she's a woman. Yeah. you know yeah. like she's just your friend yeah. so you don't even yeah. think about that stuff and you know i was raised by a woman all the best people in my life were my aunt my grandmother uh so I, you know i was pretty I, I was raised by women and then i was raised by a woman that you know for a while was pretty hard on men so uh so that so maybe that's why so maybe that maybe a little bit why the men get a rough shake and uh, night always comes
0: yeah they do and they deserve it and I don't yeah, yeah. Promise, you know? uh, guys usually do <laughs> that's the truth yeah I, I think um as i was reading it, one of the things that a couple of things came out came up to me and one of them was uh what uh craig mazin the screenwriter said one time on his podcast he's i heard him say um torture your heroes like when, when you know keep putting them through the ringer and keep torturing your heroes and i think lynette keeps getting tortured but she keeps getting up and she keeps pushing and she keeps you know she keeps getting through this but the thing you know and the, and the men again they are they're no good man in this book <laughs> they are no good and they are they're except for except for her uh grandfather they are no good and you know they are continuing to put her through all this shit and yet she ends up doing these terrible things without getting too far into it. Um, but her heart is so pure and she's doing it for such pure reasons that you can't help, but root for her and can't help, but be in her corner. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think
1: the, you know, I take it back to cause there is her boyfriend was a really cool guy as well. Yeah. True. true, um, true. Uh, but, but I thought about the book in terms of, it really kind of started with the two ideas. The one being Portland, Oregon, where I live, is going through this massive boom and is is getting gentrified really insanely fast. And the housing prices in the, just in the last in the last 20 years have over quadrupled, um, and, and you know where minimum wage has only gone up twice. So it's and and like even like I have a little office, and outside my office I could see where there's been five apartment buildings gone up in the last six, seven years. So it's just like massive growth. It's such an accelerated rate. I was just interested in that idea of what do you do if you're just scraping by at the status quo back when it was 15 years ago. And all of a sudden, all these people come in with money and these people that are doing really well can buy the house you've always wanted, buy it and tear it down and then build like a little mansion on it. Like, how do you compete with that? And that got me thinking about President Trump's quote, uh, which I put in the front of the book, which is, you know, the point is you can't be too greedy, and and he was speaking in terms of business deals, but but I but I think so much of our country is based on based on um, that, like big business guys saying, man, you just we just got to make more money. It's all about the shareholders, and and I said, okay, if 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 it's okay for CEOs and bond traders and stock brokers to fuck with the rules, and and if it's okay for them to get and get get get, uh, then how does that look for the bottom? Mm-hmm. If you say greed is good and and capitalism just straight out the gun is fucking great for all, you know a blanket statement for all humanity, then this is how it looks at the bottom. And so a lot of the men she meets in that night are just different variations on greed, on and and that idea of trickle-down greed, like get old Reagan's, you know, uh trickle down, you know, economy where you're gonna, you know, you know, the rich guys will it'll trickle off their their the sweat of their brow and, and the poor guys will get to catch it and they'll get them a few bucks. So how does that look if 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 it's the you know just greed dripping down? And so so that's why the book has that kind of dark edge to it because it's it's kind of a cynical book and it's it's also kind of a desperate book it's Mm -hmm. lynette lynette kind of represents community she believes in home ownership and saving her family she believes in trying to be good even though you know like most families and most people she's got a lot of weight on her back and she's got a lot of scars on her and, and a lot of dance on her but she still gets up every morning and tries and so i i was trying to have those two duke it
0: out in a way yeah, oh, man, that's great. Wow, that's more than I could have asked for. So what what is the, the process for you writing when, when you sit down to write a novel? Can we get kind of granular on that? And like, what you because you've got these other creative outlets. So like, are you getting up and writing every day? Are you writing in spurts? Like what, what does the process look like for you? When you're writing a novel?
1: I mean, honestly if if I could if you could say man, you could go on vacation tomorrow, where would it be and I'd just say, man just send me take me to a motel somewhere where I don't know anybody and um, maybe a good restaurant or two uh, down the street and uh and I can ride without anybody pulling me off it. Wow uh, that would be my dream. So I like doing it um and if I can do it every day all day long I would do it you know life life gets in the way being in a like a mom and pop band's really tough because you have to do so much of the heavy lifting um and and small time band um and touring of course screws you up but but really I just get up every day and if I can if my life doesn't get in the way I I like writing Mm -hmm. so usually I'll start like over a cup of coffee I could tell you The night always comes. Like before I start the book, I could say, "Man, this is what's generally going to happen," and and I it usually stays about like ninety percent like that, and then usually and then I fill in all the blanks, like the the little stuff along the way, and I can write them pretty fast, like you know, under a year. And then, but they're not very good at all. I mean, they're they're fucking horrible, really. And, um, and then I spend two, maybe two years, two and a half years. And I just, I, I go through it and I go through it and I go through it. I might be like this one. i I cut out 200 pages and edited maybe 14, 15 serious times before I even showed it to anybody. So, uh, uh, I really go over them just cause that's the way, that's the way I feel best about doing it. And then, and then I send it out and then, and then I do more edits off, off that. So, so, uh. You know, the thing with, with writing novels is it's, it's, it's like fucking digging a ditch, man, and, and it takes a long time. It's like digging a ditch, and you don't uh, know where you're going exactly, and so uh, it just takes time. So you, that's the problem with, with writing novels. It just takes so much time.
0: Yeah. Well, in this one, in the acknowledgments, again, going back to the, uh, the acknowledgments that spurred so many questions for me, you said for such a short book, it sure took a long time um did it take longer than you expected or did it take longer than normal
1: well what what happened is I I just took a wrong turn you know it happened and don't skip out of me too I I uh I just I wrote a whole big section of the not always comes it just didn't work and I spent maybe a year and a half on that part alone so it was maybe 150 pages and um and it just didn't it didn't it didn't work I mean I I did the same thing. I quit drinking for, uh, eight months. I started jogging, you know, I started like fucking, I pulled out the DVD yoga DVD and started doing that. Cause I was trying to get like one little more brain cell in my head working so I could figure it out. And eventually I just couldn't figure it out. So I had to cut a couple hundred pages off and it was a bad idea, uh, to start out with, but I just couldn't admit it. And, um, and so I had to cut, I cut 200 pages out. And then once I did the book kind of wrote itself, you know, I was, you know, it knew, it always kind of knew what it wanted to be. And I, I pushed it out into something else. And same thing with, uh, don't skip out of me. was the same. I cut 300 pages out of that one. Uh, I just took it. You know, I had a whole other character in, in that novel and it just, it just didn't feel right. And, and I just couldn't, I stopped. I, 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 I lost sleep over it, you know, and, I was like going fucking nuts over it. And we were on the road and and I started, I showed my drummer, the guy I keep mentioning, Sean, the, the smart guy. I showed him, I go, look at my hand shaking. I think I'm having a nervous breakdown. He goes, man, your hand's not shaking. And, and he goes, well, what's wrong, man? Are you really like, I go, I think I'm having a heart attack, man. And he's like, really? You know, uh, he started getting kind of worried about me. And he's like, well, what's wrong, man? What are you feeling like? And I go, well, and he goes, what's going on? And I said, well, you know, uh, I think I have to cut 300 pages out of my book. And he just looks at me and he goes, is that it? I fucking thought it was something serious. <laughs> and He goes, he goes, just, uh, he said, uh, just have a couple drinks and cry, cry, you know, cry to yourself like you do. And then, and then, you know, and leave me alone basically. And then the next morning I got up and started the process of cutting three, you know, while we were in a van driving, I cut, I started cutting 300 pages out. And, you know, it's like either quit or you, figure it out and and I figured it out but it's a long it's a long process man and I and it it always hurts too oh my
0: gosh I'm curious about it's so good to have to have people in your life like that right to remind you that because I think as a creative sometimes we can get so lost in our ideas and so obsessed with our projects I remember when I started the marinade early on I got stressed about something. I don't even remember at this point what it was because it didn't fucking matter. And whatever it was, I was stressed about it. And my partner was like, okay, what are you stressed about? And I explained the thing to her. And she's like, so you're stressed about your podcast. Like, that's what you're stressed about right now. Your podcast that you do as a creative outlet and for fun where you get to talk to your heroes. That's the thing stressing you out. And I was like, okay, good point. She's like, if it's stressing you out, you need to stop it. Like, that's not the, like, that, that's the good bits. You love this shit. You know, so don't let it stress you out. Let it, you know, make it, let it be that creative outlet. Um, but you're not going to create well if you're stressed out, right? You're going to create well. I you... don't
1: know, man. That's a tricky one. You think so? Cause, oh, yeah, because I'm I'm sure your partner's painted stuff that she, that she can't figure out or doesn't sure. go the way she wants and She starts going nuts over it. Sure. So that's just part of the deal. It's the thing like with writing, like with writing is like, you write a bad novel and some people write a bad novel and they quit. And mm-hmm. Some write a bad novel and get bitter and never read novels again. Yeah. And some people write a bad novel and they get up and they start another one. Mm-hmm. And so for me, I was just the guy that was like, oh, you say, I know I suck. I know I suck. But I, I got another one. I got another one. And so I just never quit. So. I think it's normal to get stressed. Like you get stressed at your podcast because you want it to be better than it is. So you, so you get stressed and pissed at yourself or you buy a better mic or better headphones, or you, you, you know, you learn how to interview better or or whatever it is. It's the same thing in any art, you know, like you, Mm -hmm. you, you realize you're not a good singer. So you start singing differently or you write songs that fit your voice. Uh, Mm -hmm. You know, that sort of thing. You just kind of, you change it and edit it to, to where it, it works, you know, or you hope so. But yeah, yeah. I mean, the whole thing making stuff, if you care about it, you know, it'll drive you nuts.
0: No, that's true. It's a, it's a good point. I guess I, what I'm trying to get at is the idea that like, it's so fulfilling that if you, if you get too far down that road of getting, of getting frustrated or getting, um, you know, getting upset about it, that it's going to end up being counterproductive. Of course you should care about it. I guess my point is like at some point, You need your drummer to say, hey man, (laughs) let go, right? Like, let go of whatever it is you needed to let go of, go have your cry. And if we have those people (laughs) in our lives and we have those moments, we're able to get to that next step.
1: Yeah, I mean, it is ridiculous, you know, like, you know, like somebody crying over, you know, they, you know, years worth of like, writing a story, you know, what'd you do today, man? I lived in, you know, I might as well be fucking mainline and heroin. Cause I just disappear. I'm in these different worlds, like long extended t- periods of time. So yeah, it's not like you, you know, you lost a patient, you know, it's not like you, you know, you, you killed a horse by, Misdiagnosing it or something like that—it's none of that. It's just—it's just still fucking hurts though, and it. it's important. Yeah, it's still important. Yeah, yeah it's still, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, but you're it's, right. It's
1: always good. It's always good to have someone just say, "Like, dude, you're just making up stories, like up, man."
0: <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting that you brought up the crying thing because, like, um I, I when I was—I I just went. My sister-in-law's wedding was last weekend, and I officiated her wedding, and it was in Kansas City. I live in Orlando. And uh, I finished The Night Always Comes as the plane was landing. So the plane's landing in Kansas City. I'm headed to the rehearsal right after this. It's my first time officiating a wedding. Um, I've got this big day ahead of me the next day. And context, I think is always important when you're consuming art. But as I'm landing, landing, the the plane's landing, I'm finished, I finished the book and tears just start, it really moved, the book really moved me and tears just start welling up. And in that moment, I just wanted to be like, everyone you should be experiencing this with me right now you know i just felt like i wanted to scream i wish you could all be in this book with me right now because it's so beautiful and it's so well done willie and i just am crazy about it
1: oh man that makes it thank you thank you very much that makes me feel really nice
0: you're welcome you're welcome so a couple of quick questions and then uh we'd like to finish on what you're getting down on like what art has you inspired at the moment um and so i'm just curious about like the granular parts of you writing are, are you like in your office when you get up to write, are you like pen to paper writing things down? Do you have a typewriter like some folks do? Are you have a bunch of word documents open? Can, do you feel comfortable sharing what that like process looks like?
1: I mean, I just, I write, you know, I, in the back in the day, you know, I wrote longhand, but I edit so much that it was really a struggle. And then, um, man, I bought one of the first uh little computers like personal computers so i could so i could write on a computer so i write it i just write on a laptop man it's like mm-hmm. i was thinking about that today because i was uh listening to interviews with uh jim harrison mm-hmm. the writer i don't know if you've read him man. and and um i really like jim harrison he's really funny but he he would write longhand and there was he wrote a novella called i think it was called legends of the fall uh where he changed one sentence that's it. And he's not really a blowhard. I I think he's serious. So he wrote, it's a novella. So it's like 91 pages or something like that. And and he wrote the whole thing, changed one sentence and it was done. And I, you know, and I'm not like that. So, uh, so computer saves my ass. So I, I, I just edit and edit and edit on, on computer. Usually I work once one story at a time.
0: Okay. I don't jump around a whole lot. That's interesting. The other question I had was about that editing process is how much do do you do you think it would be it sounds like you write a whole lot and edit a whole lot. From what I understood before you bring it to anybody at all. Would there be value for you in bringing it to someone sooner? Or is 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 what you have going now what you need in order to be able to, to finish the work? Well, like, uh,
1: if, if I showed my wife 50 pages of a book, say, and she goes, man, I really don't like that guy, Bob. He's an awful guy. I wish, you know, and she would just say it like that. And, um, and then I'd go back and Bob maybe at a page 75, he just blows up into something completely different. And I, I, and become this focal point of the novel. Maybe I'd cut him out just to make her happy. You know what I mean? So like, if someone says, Oh, I don't like, uh, rochelle you know or or whatever it is or i don't like that you know that car or whatever I, generally i'd probably cut it out I and mean, um if i like the person you know uh and that's just kind of the way i am so that's why i don't show anybody anything yeah so uh because i want it to be n- n- nailed down and why i know i want to know why i do everything in the book why every character's there and and i want to know them from up and down and on all sides of them so then when I show it, so, so I show it to you and you'll go like, why'd you do this? Then I can say, because of this, 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 and this, mm-hmm. and I, you know, I could be wrong. And I, and I, and I, sometimes even at that after editing that much, sometimes I miss some big stuff, but, but generally I have it pretty dialed in. And then, so then when there's fixes that I, I understand what w- what they want fixed and, and, uh and it's a lot easier. So, you know, it's just, you know, I wrote a novel, uh, uh, part of the Lynette being a baker's because my wife was a baker and I was wanted to write this thing for part of the, the bacon part for her. So I wrote a whole other part with another bakery in it just for my wife, you know, and, and that was another like dead end. I'm like, man, like it took me months. I'm like, why isn't this working? Why isn't this fitting in? And it's just because, well, because you wrote it just for, for your friend, man, you wrote it for your, your gal, not for Lynette and uh um so so i have to kind of school myself on that and you know and the problem is is like you write a bat you know you foray into writing reggae songs or death metal songs and you know you're going to spend two weeks or a month of your life going down a wrong avenue as a songwriter but a wrong avenue is a is a, is a fiction writer is like six months to a year year for every every mistake every big mistake you make you just add on another six months or so so you know.
0: That's man, thank you. That's great. You know, I'm a, I'm about to finish, um, and I'm I was scheduling this out today because I've got some time in the summer. I'm a middle school teacher, so I get a little bit of time. And that's when I do a lot of creative work. Like, that's how I keep from going crazy is I I get up in a podcast and I write. And I've I've been working on this novel for almost two years. And I don't know that I'll ever show it to anybody, honestly. It's like, it's been a creative exercise for me. And I I don't know if it's any good because I haven't finished it yet, you know? And so, but I'm almost there. I like, I know how, where it's going. I think I'm almost there. I have a very, I, I think I could even knock it out in like a week. At this point of just sitting down and doing the work, do you have any advice for writers who are new at that process, like getting to the end there and like whether to go right into editing or put it down for a while or what to do with those next steps?
1: I mean, everybody's different, you know. Um, you know, everybody's like, you know, I was just thinking of it. Uh, you, you should listen to Stephen King on writing. He's I really mean, interesting. i read it. Yeah. Yeah, because well, yeah, yeah. I mean, because that's interesting. He's he gets in the he gets in like a in a like a in a mood. He mm-hmm. just gets in the mood of a book, he'll write the book, and then he'll he gives it like two weeks. He tries to stay in that same mood. He edits a couple times and he moves on. Sometimes you get, I guess, you can see that um, some guys spend years and years tinkering on stuff. So my, and, and I'm not the best guy either. Cause I, I wrote novels from tw- I think 19 was the first one till I was 35 before I showed anybody. Mm. So I didn't really show anybody at all. Cause it's not, it's a lot more fun just writing them than yeah. worrying if, if they're any good. Um, my advice, I guess, would be finish it, get a draft and then start from page one and read through it again. And, and then if you feel like it's got problems, just keep going until you feel like it, you, like if you showed it to somebody that you wouldn't, you wouldn't die in embarrassment, even if they didn't like it. Cause right. you put it like, if you bust your ass on anything, then at least you get, you have the confidence knowing you busted your ass. So you show up and you're like, well, I, I think this is the best I can do. And then, then generally it is at that stage. And then, then people's response to it will be better. And even if they hurt you, it won't hurt as bad because you know you tried hard. That would be one idea. So edit it a lot. And then I would, if you do start showing it to other people, I would start a new one right away. So start another book. So you fall in love, you want to fall in love with something else while your thing's getting beat up out in the world. You want to start that whole process over where you have something that nobody knows and you're, you're in your own safe little world, building this world. and. No one knows. And it's fun as hell. And you think it's cool as hell. And, uh, while your other one's getting, you know, beat up with sledgehammers and getting shot at, uh, in the real world, um, you,
0: you know, you move on. So. Wow. That sounds, that's incredible advice. Thank you. Um, this has been, this has been amazing, Willie. Uh, we always end on what you're getting down on. Is there a record or a book or, uh painting you've seen recently like any art that has you fired up at the moment
1: i mean i just started a book the other night called night dogs by ken anderson and it's a book about a 70s portland cop that's i think pretty cool um i've been reading a lot of for whatever reason i've been reading a lot of like hobo literature um and noir literature uh but night dogs is uh Seems like it's going to be a good one. Um, I'm trying to think li- listening wise, man. I just been listening to uh, ambient stuff, <laughs> ambient stuff. But the Delines just did a soundtrack to the Night Always Comes, and it's coming out in Europe. And um, and so I just been listening to a lot of like ambient stuff. But I've been listening, I've been listening to a lot of Kamasi Washington because he just makes me feel good. And Thundercat, I like those both. Those guys just because they grew up together. And and they're su- yeah and they're such good players and they just seem like such cool dudes and so I just live in this kind of false reality where all those guys are you know like I I just drive around listening to Kamasi Washington plus Kamasi Washington looks so cool yeah uh, um, and that like the epic uh, is it epic or the epic but it's such a great record um, and Thundercat's is crazy as hell and I, I love his stuff too so I've been listening to that but mostly just ambient. Still like, I listen to a lot of like Nick Cave and Warren Ellis soundtracks and, uh-huh. you, know, you know, but I, you know, sadly I haven't been listening to much else.
0: It's interesting, uh, and uh, this only happened during the pandemic. You're the third or fourth songwriter I've talked to who said they've been listening to ambient music. And then I never heard that before. And I hear it all the time now.
1: Yeah, I've been, I've always been a real sucker for instrumental music. Uh, and that maybe that's why Fontaine had so much instrumental stuff. Cause I used to, I, I used to bring in so much instrumental stuff and it, between, between bringing instrumentals and ballads, I'm, su- I'm surprised those guys didn't fucking kill me. Cause, it, cause I, for years I used to bring in, um, you know, like songs with seven verses with no chorus, like, you know, and they'd be going, okay, where's the, where's the, the, the catchy part. Yeah. And I go, man, who cares about the catchy part? And, of course,, and then you go to the, you go play that gig that night, and there's seven people there, and they're like, "See, this is why there's seven people here you're you're telling this crazy story about, you know, a guy getting locked in the trunk of a car, you know, and no, it's not catchy. Um, but yeah, I mean, maybe as you get if you're interviewing older guys too, I think as you get older, you like that ambient stuff just because if it feels good. and I mean, I think, part of me when it get the older I get the more like loud rock just doesn't work for me because man my head's so fucking worried about so many different things mm-hmm. <laughs> Like if you have some ambient music uh then it just kind of calms your ass down you're like okay I can pay that bill and I can do this and mm-hmm. you know this is fucked up and I'm putting out a fire over here and and you're like if you put on who's do right then you know uh you're gonna f- lose your fucking mind you know so uh uh I can't remember the last time i've listened to like hardcore hardcore punk i mean i guess i was i was moving hay i have horses you know and i was moving hay with this buddy of mine's kid he's like 16 really cool dude and so i I let him be the dj all, all day when we were working on my place and he's like really into the misfits and stuff like that and when listening to that kind of music through his Eyes, you know, it makes a lot of sense. It's really fun, but I just don't like when I'm home, when I'm home by myself, man, I'm I'm like, I'm, uh, I'm going out with like Bobby Gentry or, uh, you know, or, or listen to ambient music. So, you know, yeah, I don't know what that says about me, but that's, that's where I'm at.
0: Oh, i can relate man i think mean, i was noticing that all this uh the lines i've been listening to i noticed that my dogs really it calms them like they seem to dig it it like yeah. i'm always wondering what the, what the dogs because I, I was doing ambient for for them a lot in the mornings because they're both puppies and so something <laughs> about ambient music was calming them but um, you know, i'm happy to report that the Delines also uh yeah what well,
1: amy amy really could be like she could she's got the best voice like She could do ad work. Like when she when she speaks, it just calms your it calms you down. Mm. And um and yeah, she does have that. That's the thing I love about her voice is it's like really smooth and kind of sweet, but you can tell she's been through the ringer. Yeah. uh As well, so she's got that. That both of those. So maybe your dogs just understand that they're kind of they just kind of calm down because they. Amy's in town. She'll be. She'll treat them all right. She knows. She knows both sides of the street. The the nice sunny side and the dark side.
0: Well, I hope you guys do make it to town sometime in the not so distant future. I'd love to see y'all live, and I'm really excited about the C-Pack and um what what those songs are going to be like and uh i just can't again Willie. can't thank you enough for this time and for the night always comes this sure this, man. I, it was i flew through this book and i love it and it moved me in, in a lot of ways and so this has been a great honor man i'm so grateful
1: oh thanks i, I really appreciate you reading the book and uh putting up with me rambling so uh, <laughs> uh it's, it was great to meet you and, and hopefully someday in person
0: I'd love to. Thanks, man. Have a, have a wonderful rest of your day. Right on, man. See you. Bye.
1: Bye.
0: Willie Vlaton, y'all. Thank you so much, Willie. Thank all of you for listening. I can't overstate what an honor it was to speak with Willie Vlaton. This was a huge thrill. Special thanks to Ben Montgomery from the records revisited podcast for helping make this happen willievlaton.com for all things willie buy his records buy his books you will not regret doing either or both of those things marinadepodcast.com for all things the marinade including written pieces photography our online store and more follow us on Instagram and Twitter we love interacting with fans over there give us a follow and a five star rating on your podcast app these are all freeways to support the show. If you really like what we're doing, please consider joining our Patreon community where for just a few bucks a month, you can gain access to Patreon exclusive content like our show Jason's Journey, where I talk about the moments that shape my creative life and then also provide just a window into the process of making the marinades. I mean, even we even sometimes get together for Patreon happy hours where we just kind of hang. It's a really good time. Come join us if you can. If not, just tell friends about the show and keep listening, y'all. Keep listening and spreading the word. I appreciate each and every one of you who spend some time with the show. All right, y'all, it's time for what I'm getting down on this segment of the show where I talk about the art that is inspiring me at the moment. Jerry David DeSicca has a record that came out last year and is finally getting its physical release coming up very soon. It's called The Unlikely Optimist. And his domestic adventures. I sat down with Jerry to have a wide ranging conversation about that record, about his experiences touring early on, about the amazing characters he's worked with and so much more. We had a blast. Stay tuned for both of those coming soon. You can already find The Unlikely Optimist and his domestic adventures on your streaming services, and I highly recommend spending some time with that. While researching the episode, I was listening to Jerry's solo work as well as revisiting his excellent band, The Black Swans, and I got to dive into some of his production work. He's done these really cool production projects, including Larry John Wilson's self-titled record. Larry John Wilson is a name you may know if you're a devotee of the uh, Towns Van Zant Guy Clark musical Tree and Orbit, if you've seen Heartworn Highways, for example. If not, no matter— Go give that record a spin, His Larry John Wilson's solo record, solo self-titled record that Jerry David DeSica produced. Those are two things I want to recommend. I've also been listening to a lot of the legendary Rodney Crowell. Rodney was on Brian Koppelman's The Moment podcast recently, and um, he has this new record called Triage that's on the way. It should be out by the time I drop this episode. I'm recording this before... It will the the record triage will be released as of now. There are three singles available, and they are all dynamite. I'm really looking forward to hearing the rest of that record. Hearing Rodney Crowell talk with Koppelman made me go back and listen to his whole catalog. Rodney Crowell is one of the the great treasures of American songwriting. His record, the Houston Kid, I could not stop listening to the other night. Just kept running it back. Incredible tunes. I recommend listening to all of those things, you know, and also just Koppelman in general. The moment continues to inspire me. Brian Koppelman continues to inspire me as a podcaster. And speaking of podcasts, check out Reveal, which is hosted by a guy named Al Letson. Jacksonville boy Duval. Every episode is worth your time, y'all. There are two that I really want to suggest in this segment The first is called Monumental Lies. It's about the controversy over Confederate and conquistador statues and all of the revisionist history that a lot of folks want to engage in um, and the romanticization of some of those uglier parts of American history. The second is called the Pentagon Papers, Secrets, Lies, and Leaks. You can't go wrong with Reveal. Those are two great entrance points, but what an incredible podcast they do an amazing job of reporting and storytelling Uh, I can't say enough about it so check out reveal y'all that's all I have for now thank you so much for listening until next time go out and create something cheers y'all